This week I'm joined by Todd McGowan, who has written books on comedy, capitalism and various filmmakers, such as Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy, and The Impossible David Lynch, a book on the work of David Lynch. In this episode we discuss his book Capitalism and Desire, The Psychic Cost of Free Markets, alongside discussions on consumption, freedom, Deleuze and Gratori, and psychoanalysis. I'd like to thank all my patrons and paid subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you would like to support Omitics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Todd McGowan, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. Good to be here. <laughs> um, we're going to be discussing your book, Capitalism and Desire, The Psychic Cost of Free Markets. But before we jump in, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do and uh, the uh, the trajectory of your work. So I'm a film professor at the University of Vermont, and I teach classes in film, obviously, and cl- but I also teach a lot of theory classes. So I do classes on psychoanalysis and Hegel. And I really, I've been in, into psychoanalysis and Hegel ever since graduate school. And that was, so that, that's kind of been my underlying thread of my, of my work and my thought. And I initially wrote mostly on film, and then I've, I've, that capitalism and desire book was a kind of a turning point for me where I turned to, to writing about political, social, economic questions. Perhaps we'll, we'll get into why you sort of made that transition and why was that, that was important, but I'd like to get the hermetics question uh, out of the way first. So you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the question, uh, on the conversation. Who do you pick? Okay. I, I love this question. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, and I, I, I've, I've often thought about this, and I think I would like—I would pick three thinkers that actually were in a room together at one time. Mm-hmm. That's Holderlin, Hel- Hegel, and Schelling, who were roommates at Tubingen Seminary. And I've always thought it would have been so great to just be in their seminary dorm room and and listen to them talk right at the time before they had emerged as as great thinkers, but just as they were just you know, university students together. I, I always thought that'd be a great conversation to listen to because in a way their thought it's very similar. So it all developed out of the same form, but it, it went in such disparate directions also that it would be interesting to get a sense of what, how they were different, even at their origin point and how they were the, and, and what they shared. Uh, I don't know. So that, that's what I, I think that's those three, I think would be the, I would just love to be in that dorm room. A friend of mine once said, I don't think a lot of video games were played in that dorm room. And I've always, I've always liked that idea. I've liked the idea of like three really roommates in college just totally committed to thinking. Yeah, that's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. Is there a, is there a question between the three that you think they answer in different ways that you'd like to see how they sort of reach that point? Okay, so Holland, he initially wrote some theoretical texts, but then he turned to poetry and then he just went crazy very young. So him, I think he and Hegel are really close, but Schelling, what's interesting is I think uh, Schelling and Hegel, so Schelling was five years younger and he, but he was famous much well before Hegel was, but then Hegel's star eclipsed him later in life and Schelling hated him. So I, I, I guess what the, the question I would be consumed with early on is this question of how they viewed subjectivity in relationship to the whole, because that's where like, I think Hegel has more room for subjectivity than Schelling. There's a way in which he it disappears within what Schelling thinks of as the whole. I think, although Schelling also wrote a great treatise on human freedom, so 
that's why I think it'd be an interesting question to to confront with them. And your your latest book is on Hegel, correct? Yeah, not my exact latest, but my <laughs> my second latest. Yeah, okay. it's, it's called Emancipation After Hegel. Yeah. Okay. Um. So why? Yeah, back to this first question: Why the sudden turn to a, a political text away from film work? Well, two reasons actually. I felt like I had said all I could say about film, and so I just I found myself just repeating the same thing, and then I thought I should stop repeating myself. Hmm. Uh, and also, I I. I felt like I was trying to say something writing about film indirectly that I could just say directly. And so I felt it's almost like an economic decision. Like I felt like I should just go do it directly. What I was, what it was most concerned of concern to me. And I no longer had to worry about, not that I ever really worried about this, but about like tenure or questions like that. And so I could just do what I wanted to do, but I, I always kind of did what I want to do. But, but I, 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 I always was, trying to think about things in film indirect, you know, like questions indirectly. And I was using film to think about them. And I still like in capitalism and desire, I have a few film references. I don't, I haven't excluded it, but I just, and I, I also was bored by the law, like a thir- 30, I wrote a little book called uh, psychoanalytic film theory and rules of the game. And I spent a hundred pages analyzing the rules of the game. And I, I, I really have no desire to, dive that deeply into a film ever again so is, is that film sort of that's a great great film like in a masterpiece is that film ruined for you now for life it, well <laughs> i don't know if i would say that i haven't watched it subsequently so <laughs> so it's it's what's funny is writing on a film i think ruins it more than even te- like david lynch i wrote a book on and i i i haven't I just showed my kids blue velvet it's the first time since 2007 that i've watched a david lynch film so it really I think it does. It does ruin it. Yeah, that's something um, that I know. I didn't put it in the questions, but it's something I noticed about capitalism and desire actually, which was really, really refreshing. As, as someone who's sort of reading a lot of contemporary books on philosophy all day, that there wasn't you. You refrained from needing much vindication or justification. You were just putting your arguments out there, and there wasn't. Not, not to say the the arguments weren't. Um, clear and concise but that that didn't feel that you you felt the need to sort of back them up with a oh someone else said this and now i'll follow on like a lot of academics do that and it sort of gets frustrating it's like just i get what you're trying to say you don't need the proof you know? i know i find <laughs> i have to say that I, I i write that way because as a reader i'm just frustrated exactly the way you are so it's that's purely what it's from like i in fact when i'm reading a book and i come to a quotation I shouldn't confess this, but I just almost read over it every time. Like I just skip right past it, especially if it's indented quotation. I'm just, I'm just past that. Like I'm just not gonna. Yeah, because I, you know what's coming is like their encapsulation of it, and then their continuation. So yeah, exactly. So they're like... going to give it to me anyway. So why do I have to bother reading that? So <laughs> I and so that that's really influenced the way that I write as well. Okay. So what, um, yeah, what did influence you to write this book and what, in what way do you see it as set apart from the other literature in this, in this category, which is sort of perpetually growing? Right. It's huge. (laughs) It's really true. Uh, I guess that I felt like no one had ever talked about capitalism in a psychoanalytic way in the way that I thought, I mean, clearly there have been people that have brought psychoanalysis to bear on capitalism, but I didn't feel like they had done it in a way that got at how capitalism really, there's something that must be satisfying about it. Otherwise it wouldn't be perpetuated so long. So I guess that's what I, I just felt like there was this lacuna 
nobody had said what I wanted to say. And so I thought I should say it. So that's, it's really all, all it was. And then I, I, I wrote the book over a long period of time. Like I had the, the chapters were different things. There are a couple of chapters were written earlier. And then I'm like, Oh, I kind of have a whole idea here that I want to, that I want to pursue. So that's what happened. That actually leads me into one of the questions. One of the things you said there is that something has to be satisfying about capitalism. This is sort of the big quandary. And one of the things you wrote in Capitalism and Desire is a strange sort of synchronicity. I literally the day before I watched this episode of uh, The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, where yeah. this man goes to uh, what he thinks is heaven in a casino and he wins everything. He just keeps winning and he's got all these beautiful women and absolutely nothing is a struggle. You know, so he's always winning in the slots, every single woman, he can woo them, however. And then, you know, he talks to this angel and they, you know, they eventually say, yeah, we never said this was heaven. This is hell, right? Because you right. need the, you need the struggle to make anything right. worthwhile. And this is something that you outline in your book is there's sort of this strange paradox in capitalism that you have everything on a plate and the whole point of capitalism, like you just give us some money, we'll give you everything you want, every one of your desires. And yet at the same time, there has to be some grind somewhere for there to be some satisfaction. So where do you, where do you find the satisfaction? Where do you, where do you see that being? Yeah, I think it's in, in capitalism, it's actually in the repetition of the failure. And I think the failure to, like what you're talking about, like the, the failure of those winnings to be satisfying to the guy that keeps winning. And I think it's through that failure of like the satis, it's the way I think of it is that if you think of desire as what satisfies it is its repeated failure, but its failure to realize itself. So I'd like to distinguish between the way desire is satisfied and the realization of desire, which is to me impossible. Like right, just like your casino example, like you realize your desire, you find, oh, that's not what I wanted at all, right? Like mm-hmm. so, so that I think, I think it, that's how capitalism functions. That when it, even when we win, we find like, oh, that really wasn't what I wanted at all. And I think that one of my favorite examples is. I was at buying a car a long time ago when I could afford a car. Uh, and I, 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 the guy's like, you know, when you drive, he, he was just, this, I was just speculating with this car dealer. Uh, and he's like, it's interesting because once you drive out of here, the car immediately loses like $2,000 in value. Everybody knows this. And, and, and he said, you know, he, he thought like, it's interesting that that happens. Why is that? And I said, well, isn't it because of the wary structure of like, capitalism needs that to happen so that right when you drive out, you're automatically, your desire is already dissatisfied. You're already thinking about the next thing that I can buy because this car is not quite what I, I wanted it to be. Right. That's the perfect analogy, right? So it's as soon as, as soon as you've got it, it's almost like you could grasp it for a nanosecond and it just fades right. away, fades away. Right. And it wasn't anything that, so that sort of begs the question then what, what, what was desire before, before capitalism? Yeah, it's a great. I mean, that's an interesting question. I think, and I, I mean, the whole wager of my book is, and I, and and I should say that I have had objections to the book on precisely this ground that what I'm really analyzing is what capitalism has created, not the structure of desire that capitalism is, is 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 parasitical on. And so that's my claim is that there's a basic structure of desire, and capitalism writes itself on top of that, and the idea is that. Desire was like that, but the, the the point is that capitalism takes advantage of and promises this ultimate fulfillment that never existed before. I think it existed before in the notion of an afterlife that you could only reach that realization of desire 
so in in heaven, right? But I think now the idea is that there can be a he- capitalism promises a heaven on earth. So that's I think that's the main difference is that is that the promise of capitalism is for ultimate satisfaction in the here and now, and I don't think that existed in in prior epochs. So could you could you perhaps expand out the idea of um, the afterlife as as some sort of uh, transcendent meaning that that. If you have a transcendent meaning in your life, which capitalism sort of seeks to remove because they're not that profitable all the time, right? Then, then you have a reason to do things on Earth. If if that's gonna better your understanding or better your commitment to God or uh, Nirvana or whatever it is, but if right. you don't have that, then as you say, the entire premise is material capital. So that's all you've got to work with, right? And the, and and that you and that and the, the idea of capitalism is that you can get. The equivalent of that secularly, I think that's the real wager of capitalism that it can that through the commodity you can actually have the kind of meaning in your life that some believer in, in prior epochs had. So I think that I think it really is an attempt to replace that logic of to bring that logic of the afterlife back down into the into the here and now. So why why then do you, do you think people keep going? If this is the case, they're stuck in a, a treadmill. Yeah, yeah, because I think because of the promise of the satisfaction to come. I mean, I think the idea that in this time, like it, capitalism really doesn't let you learn your lesson. I think that's the thing, right? Like it because you're so bombarded with the images of other people being satisfied, even if they're not, even if it's just a fantasy, that I think it's it's really hard not to succumb to that, I think, because it's just it's it it hits you everywhere and it's it's in everything and i think you know almost every film has this promise it could be it could be in the figure of the other as a commodity like the potential lover but it could be it, i mean the car is an example uh the beer a beer is an example right like uh there are all these things that hold this promise of satisfaction and and i think and this is why i think also why we're so infatuated with the new and the technological because you say like, oh, I wasn't satisfied before, but they're going to invent this new thing, but that'll really provide me the satisfaction that I was missing, like the new Tesla or whatever, or the new trip to Mars or whatever it is. So we're sort of existing, uh, you know, I put this quote here, an, an advert creates an anxiety relievable by purchase. We're just in a, a state of anxiety all the time about our status, our popularity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right to say that the purchase really is... It seems like it's going to be a panacea, but then, as we just mentioned, it never is. It always produces – it sends you right back into that prior dissatisfaction that's looking for. And I, I mean the point of my book is that the, the reproduction of dissatisfaction, there's actually something satisfying to that, right? So, so there's an underlying – because through this underlying repeated failure, that, that's how desire actually does satisfy itself. So there's no – because there's no I, there's no possibility for really getting an object that's satisfying. That object doesn't exist for anybody. So the only possibility for satisfaction is this repeated failure. And I think, ironically, to answer your question again, like I think it's not just that we don't learn our lesson, but that we find something appealing about that repeated failure that capitalism makes us succumb to. So to use a sort of uh, fairly hammy metaphor – it's sort of like Sisyphus, but uh, he's looking forward to the ball rolling back down. So this this will be the time. This this one will be the the push, which will finally 
satisfy me. You know, so it's not a struggle to get to the peak. It's a, it's a, like an enjoyment when it's like, finally, I get to buy this. I get to roll it again. I get to roll the dice yeah. again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, so it's not this drudgery of Sisyphus starting over. It's like, oh my God, I get to start over and I get to do it. Yeah. That's, a, that's more, I think that's more depressing. It is more, I think it's much more depressing, right? I think there's something profoundly depressing about capitalism. If, if, if nothing more than it's just, it's relentless optimism. You know, I find that what's depressing about it. So do you think there's some way we can go from from this dissatisfaction then? As soon as we admit, okay, we are, we're sort of, um, we revere dissatisfaction. We love it. We love being dissatisfied because it gives yeah. us a new springboard. We can finally, you know, buy another TV or whatever it is because I'm dissatisfied with the last one. If we sort of remain in that moment in our dissatisfaction, do you think there's somewhere we can, something we can learn from that, something, somewhere we can go from that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if you I think that one thing that capitalism cannot function with is people that accept that failure is itself success, right? Because you have to be bent upon success in order to be a good capitalist subject. If you just if you accept that, look, I'm never going to get it, then it then you're no longer seduced by all the ads or whatever, you know, like I think that's how to not be a capitalist subject is to accept the way in which in that dissatisfaction, there's something that's profoundly satisfying that that's that there's no other satisfaction outside of that. And I think once you get that, then then I think you, you can't function like a normal or good capitalist subject. Yeah, I mean, this is why for me, like I always steered towards the, the, the Deleuze and Guattari route of the idea that capitalism is something which is constantly feeding and it needs stuff to feed on. But it always makes me, you know, what you said there makes me think of uh, this cartoon of um, the American Gothic painting. And it says, on top of it, it says, capitalism's worst nightmare. And basically one of the, I think the woman is saying to the man, you know, we've got everything we need. We don't need anything else. You know, and they're just like completely exactly. content. And, the, you know, from a Deleuze and Guattarian perspective, that's basically the problem is that you have a stagnance. You can't feed on it and you can't change it. Like it's completely dead. So, but, the, but I think something perhaps they don't overlook is the idea that, well, capitalism will sort of suffocate those people out and you just sort of get alienated. Because you're no longer in in the dynamics, right? I mean, I, I I guess I I do see something kind of radical about that position of saying like, look, I have enough. I don't need anything. And I guess my suspicion of the Deleuzian position is that I think it's a it's a little like they their I think their wager is that the logic of capitalism will undermine itself if it's pushed to its limit, and. I guess I'm just not so sure about that. I mean, I think there's a way. I've always thought that that's that Deleuze and Guattari are, are more in keeping with the spirit of Marx than almost anybody else, because I think that's Marx's idea too. like push capitalism forward to its ultimate contradiction and then it'll undermine itself. Although I'm not sure in Deleuze and Guattari how much contradiction plays a part in their thinking. Like I'm not I, I don't really remember that as a real prominent aspect of of the way they theorize capitalism. Uh, yeah, I don't think right? contradiction is too much there because for them, a contradiction basically instantly becomes re-territorialized as a part of capitalism itself. So, right. so any contradiction... Right. And I think, I think they... Right, sorry, sorry. That's okay. I, I think they would also say that contradiction is a sign of negativity, which they don't think exists, right? I think that would be part of the, part of the problem. So... Your method about flanking it is actually 
almost to to stay still. Do you think that going backwards or reverting would would actually feed into it? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I think that like I, when I when you say going backward, it makes me think of the of these a lot of these populist movements, you know that. And I think what's interesting is the populist movement doesn't it like on on one level it it, it claims to undermine the logic of capital in some way. I think. Uh, but I think in another way, it's it's complete. It ends up. I think it's fine for business. You know, I think like Hitler was good for business. Like he wasn't. I mean, I mean, you know, even though he, in certain ways, he interrupted the flow of international capital. On the other hand, by and I think this is part of the problem of capitalism that it, it, it evacuates all identity, and so it, in a way, it gives birth to these movements of identity, these populist movements of identity politics, like Nazism or whatever. So I think. Or Trumpism, whatever that is. I, I think that their attempts to 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 fill out what capitalism is missing, but there's a way in which they still coincide with its functioning, right? Like they're not really challenging it, even though, like Trump says, like I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge China on trade, and I'm gonna put up barriers, and I'm gonna get in the way of the flow of capital. But he hasn't really done that. He's just really gotten in the way of the flow of people between countries. So they're, they're just entering these these sort of movements are just entering into a different sort of form of flow of capital. Well, right, right, right. And I think what you said was right. Like capitalism will just will will bring them in and use them, and it's it, it, they're fine. Like I don't think it's I don't think it's you know other, unless you have a Nazi Germany and also the business is owned by a Jew, then it's not going to be working. But right, but but other than that, I think you, capital accommodates itself to those movements perfectly fine yeah so i think that in other words so that's why i think like going back to some other kind of identity i think that's never that's never really a a way to put a wrench in the functioning of capital i think i in this sense i do believe believe with deleuze and guattari that you have to move forward you can't you can't move i mean they're very they they very much see the attempt to go backward as fascistic and and you know would and so i i think that that's i i agree with them about that so for you, what would be a sort of a healthy place to move into, which isn't still caught in this uh, entrapment of desire? Right. It would be it would be the embrace of desire. What we just talked about, the way in which this and, you know, the problem is I someone has many people have asked me, like, how does this function collectively? I don't have any idea about that. But but I just I mean, I, my sense is that there has to be a, a grasp that my the failure is already the success. And so I don't. I don't I don't look for that promise to be fulfilled. And if I don't accept if I'm not seduced by capitalism's promise, then I'm not seduced by capitalism. I really believe that. I think that that getting out of that promise of this ultimate fulfillment here on Earth is the real key to to undermining its 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 power over us. So, I mean, there's a really tough question there that seems that would it's almost like layered in the sense that you need something which completely isn't capital in the sense that uh you just sort of say i'm fine you know like i'm 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 done i'm fine that by itself isn't capitalism but it's still within capitalism so we sort of right. need to we need to birth a new way of being but but you know make no no lies about the fact that it's ever going to be outside capitalism well right i mean i think that i think that act of withdrawal is the thing that generates the outside like i i, I firmly believe there are contradictions within capitalism so it's never a whole system, right? I think, I think that I, and one of the things I think people today on the left we tend to think that it's just this whole thing that can't ever be 
undermined. And I, my sense is that's not right, that it, there, there are these points of contradiction within capitalism where there are non-capitalist elements all around us every day. And so I think we shouldn't be I mean, I think that's one way that capitalism perpetuates itself is by saying or making us think that it's the only possible game in town. So you, so you wouldn't agree with um, Mark Fisher then that, that sort of one of the inherent problems with leftism with respect to capitalism is that they haven't, they just like many, many leftist movements haven't accepted that capitalism is the reality right now. Yeah, that's not my sense at all. I think that there, I think that there's maybe too much of a sense of that, you know, like a sense that this is the only possibility for us now. I mean, I think I, I understand the point that you have to fully grasp the realities of the capitalist situation. I think that's absolutely right. So I do agree with them about that. But I, but on the other hand, I don't think it's right to say that there aren't other possibilities all the time around us present. You know, like I think they're they're there because capitalism is at odds with itself all the time. Like it's, I mean, it's one of the greatest things about it, as you've you've mentioned in our emails, is that it's a a, a way to it has this ability to take in all these disparate elements, right? And it, of course, it couldn't take things in if it wasn't already open to things that are external to it and 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 contradictory to it and things that would undermine it. I think that I mean, in, in a certain way, that's the real problem that people have dealt with. Theorists have have thought about with capitalism is how do you take how do you address this thing that seems to be able to welcome in every kind of disparate phenomenon. So it's sort of like. The, the leftist movement needs to find the right parasite to right exactly it. yeah it's a great it's a great term because that film is really about that same kind of thing you know yeah yeah i mean one one thing you mentioned as well is um you met you you mentioned a lot of um critical theory in the uh, the frankfurt school and they have this idea of their idea of repression sort of coming from a psychoanalytical point of view psychoanalytical repression is is far more sort of classical and a bit more grand but the Frankfurt notion of repression is sort of extremely, extremely minute and banal. You know, it's like our daily lives. And do you, obviously, you know, this plays a part. But in what sense do you think the this form of repression, this idea that our daily lives are just completely steeped in, you know, do you think finding sort of micro ways to break out of these repressions would begin to draw in this parasite that, you, that we're on about? I do think that's right, except I'm not sure. Do you really think it's repression? I've, I've always thought I'm not, I've never been sure about this because like, I, I feel like, I guess my sense is that we really are satisfying our desires, right? So I, that's why I'm not sure that it's really repression. I guess, I guess I've always, it seems to me like there's much more fetishistic disavowal at work within capitalism than repression. And I've always just been suspicious of that Frankfurt process, but I, this is that's a long answer to say that I totally agree with you that it's in these little it's in this like I think you, here's what I would say that that in order to be part of a collective action against capital you have to be in the proper position yourself as a as an individual so that's if that's and I think that means you know desiring differently or having a different relationship to your desire so I, I absolutely think that that those kind of breaks are then harbingers in a sense of the larger possibility of a break from capital. Yeah, I think one of the arguments would be that because capitalism is um, targeted towards growth and profit, that the 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 methods 
that we you know we do we use on a daily daily basis driving you know no, the the idea that we need a mortgage or drive places or uh we walk instead of you know skipping or running just because we might want to these are more managed you know there's less spontaneity in the system if we do these so it seems that almost like peer pressure normalcy these seems to be capitalist to me i i think that's a great point i think it's a great point that that and this is why i think that that Peer pressure to act in non-capitalist ways, I don't think really works because I think it ends up reproducing the logic of capital in just because of its very function as peer pressure. You know, so I think that's a really I really love that idea that these ways are kind of that that's really how capitalism functions in getting us to because that's what it is really about following along. I think like that's I think that's really the that's what it. That's what it relies on more than anything, because because in, in truth, like even more than an ad, what seduces us is the fact that, you know, Janie next door has got this nice car. Right. And that's what that's why I really want to have it because or I want her not to have it, whatever. Yeah, that's the big desire is is it's mimesis all the way, like pretty much all the way down. It's mimetics. You know, they've got it, right. you know, or, or popular people have got it. If I get it, I'll be popular. Right. And it seems to me that the. the, the Perhaps this parasite needs to start from the idea of, like you said, an acceptance, but also not just an acceptance of not needing things, but also being comfortable with saying, like, I'm fine driving a piece of crap car or something like this, you know. No, I absolutely think that there's a kind of important radicality in driving your crappy car. And (laughs) if it gets smashed in the back, not going to get it repaired to make it look nice or whatever. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Yeah. And I think the thing is, on on a sort of minute level, the same... The same applies in a lot of things. Like I, I read this piece ages ago where in my office I was really hungry and I just had a can of tuna. So I just ate the can of tuna and everyone like berated me for it. But then I sort of like I ran like when I got home, I just wrote it out straight away. Like I'm eating food. I don't, and, and I had this sort of brainwave of just like not brainwave. That's the infatuation. But just this, this thought of like how far has capitalism gone where I can't just eat some plain food without having, you know, it was weird. It's not normal. It's why I don't understand even why did they think it was weird? Which is, I was eating it out of the can, but I was just eating oh. tuna out of the can. Exactly. This is my thing. It's like, why is it weird? But no one else could explain why either. You see, oh. so it's this like idea of, but it was like, Oh, you're just eating out of, out of the can. And, and for me, it was like a, a, a big metaphor for what capitalism is like. It's like, you have this layer of, it's just because we do it like that. But as right. soon as you step away from that, I think so many opportunities open up. I think that's right. I think it's – I mean, look, I think someone said to me that they thought Capitalism and Desire was like a self-help book to get out of all these things. And I, I thought I was perfectly fine with that because I do think that like if there's not going to be some big revolutionary change coming, then I think these little things, they make your life better. Like I think that's – because it, it allows you not to succumb to the to the pressure. I mean that – like like – you're able to enjoy the little can of tuna without worrying about, Oh my God, this is not how you're supposed to be doing it. So I got to do it that way. So I think, I really think this connection between capitalism and the, the reign of the, of the, of, I don't know. There's all these kinds of name for it. Like Heidegger calls it the, they, or Lacan calls it the big other, like the reign of this uh, social authority saying you have to do it a certain way. I think under capitalism, what's interesting is, that force becomes even stronger than state authority, right? Like, like I think most of us would rather violate the actual law 
than violate the dictates of the big other, right? Like, I think I think it's you feel much like you break the law. Eh, well, I hope they don't catch me. But if you if you violate the big other, you're even you accuse yourself of doing something wrong. Like, oh my God, that's not how I'm supposed to eat tuna. Just to put it on a sandwich or in a salad. I'm I'm not doing it the right way. What is everybody going to think of me? So so I think that's a really that's a that's an interesting kind of switch in history that that the larger political power actually loses force over us as 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 individual beings in our daily lives. So you're sort of moving towards someone like a revolutionary individualism because there seems to be a problem is that like there's there's a sort of that that gut anxiety even when you break like a small law or like I don't know park in a space where you're not meant to for a couple of minutes it's like oh you know it's a bit dangerous. But like you said when you're breaking the 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 rules of the big other I think perhaps the point we need to get to is where we no longer even think that we're doing that. So like when you do it, right. we still have this gut instinct like, oh, they're going to think I'm odd. They're going to think I'm odd. But this is how I want to do it. So it's almost like an act of rebellion. But we need to right. get to the point where they're, where we're not even thinking that. It's like we're completely fine with like doing whatever <laughs> doing whatever we want to do not having, right. to, not having to vindicate it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right because I think it's just as bad to perversely do the opposite of what you think the big other wants, right? Because you're still just as... You're still just as slavishly devoted to the big other. You're just constantly offending this force, right? So I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that to get it to count for nothing is the key. I mean, I don't think that I understand there is a way in which that's kind of radically individualist, I guess. But Mm -hmm. I think that I, I guess what I would say is that's the basis. Like the big other is actually a barrier to a real universal collective because it's all I think this is a key thing about it. It's always hierarchical. Like it always you because you obey it so that you get a higher status than other people, right? So there's it's not like it's for everyone. It's 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 always wants to there always that that social authority always wants to create a hierarchy. So I think it's impossible to be to have a true universality within it. So what could you said your book's a self-help book? Do you think you could outline some practical steps towards uh you know, like, like, th- th- it seems what we're on about is, is self-policing. You know, this idea of any action you take, whether it's like how you stack your books in your room to how you drive your car, to what your car looks like, you know, like everything is there is something in your brain, which is like unconsciously, you understand how it should and shouldn't be. So we need some sort of like steps to stop policing these ideas of should and shouldn't, right? Do you think, yeah. do, you, yeah. do you think, do you have any? <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I someone said to me that, you outline everything theoretically, but you don't say how to get there <laughs> practically. And I think that's probably true. I mean, I think I, all I can say is to think about what, how, where your satisfaction lies. I mean, that's what I do as a kind of like, I always think like, what is satisfying to me and what is just kind of is creating this phantasmatic illusion that I think will get me out of these problems. And I, I guess the other thing I would say is to think about the thing that's an obstacle to what I believe that I want and to see its necessity. So my favorite example of this is my, my spouse is constantly like, uh, leaving lights on or leaving not like she's not just, and I, it used to just drive me crazy. And then, but then, I recognize she's also incredibly generous and constantly thinking about other people, not herself. And then I, I came to realize that, oh, wait a minute. The very thing that causes her not to think obsessively about the light is also the thing that makes her so incredibly generous with other people. So so I recognize that 
the thing that I took as a deficit was also the thing that I I was essential to her and not what I cherished. So I th- I try to think of that that in terms of everything, like like the car, like oh, what is it that I like about the car? Well, it, it does, but I also that's tied to what's a problem with it too. And I think that to, to think about it that way. I think is that's to me the essence of dialectical thinking, and that's what I try to do. I think that's what you have to do personally. I mean, I think people think of dialectics as this larger thing about the society, but I think it also functions on a personal level as well. Yeah, I mean, you're moving towards sort of a an almost like a critique of improvement as it's seen under capitalism, in that there's this general idea of everything can be improved or everything can be min-maxed or you know maximized or minimized or it, it has some direction but but you know this interesting idea of like yep my car's got a dent in it like <laughs> that's it so this almost like an idea of a non-improvement it's like well, i think that's absolutely right because you can look at the think about how i mean since my car has gotten junked up it's been it's such a relief like i got hit so i was driving i was at a red light a woman just smashes into the back of my car I get out, her car's screwed up. Mine's got a little scuff on the bumper. I'm like, I hope you're okay, fine. And I just drove away. She's like, should we change information? I'm like, no, it's fine. Because it was already scuffed up and I didn't have to worry about it. And I just thought, look, if every time I see the dent in the car, if I think to myself, wow, what a relief that is. I don't have to be obsessively making sure no one runs into me or whatever, or I have to get the, take it to the... So that saved me from having to take it to the car mechanic and wasting a whole day and i was able to like read a little kant and so i wouldn't have been only so every time i look at that dent i say like oh there's a manual kant like i read another book by kant because i got the car dent in the car so that's what i think you're exactly right like this idea of like perpetual improvement is what you have to i think jettison yeah i had uh, the exact same moment happened to me and my, my car's like a piece of rubbish this gaffer tape all over it and like they they said to me when it passed the mot like oh we gaffer taped that up but like, you need to get it sorted. I said, is it illegal if I don't get it sorted? They said, no. I said, well, it doesn't need sawing then. You know, like it <laughs> drives, it goes from A to B. But I was parked right. and someone opened their door and it like chipped my car and uh, they panicked and I just gave them a nod and like shrugged, you know, because and then it, it right. sort of occurred to me in that moment, probably the same as you, is like there's a big amount of capitalist theater that you can then go through, which makes you feel really proper and like you know it's sort of like people yeah i got in a car crash and then i had to do the insurance and we had to exchange numbers and it's almost like this theater which makes them this proper citizen whereas if you just check out you go no i've got more important things to do than a little a little chip or blah 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 but i think you know all these sort of narratives that we put ourselves through make you make a lot of people feel really like they're they're living correctly you know right like like they belong right Mm -hmm. like that yeah yeah, I mean, I think I think that's one of the great aspects of capitalist control as well. That that it's you constantly never feel like you belong. Yet you think if I do this other thing, then I'll really belong. Yeah, I think there's been quite a bit of literature about that in the past few years about about well, as you say, belonging. But this idea of like any tribe, what used to be called tribe or group or community, it never feels that way because I think I think most communities probably would used to have their own sort of economic basis, whether it's potlatch or just right. donations right. and they all seem to be riding on like an almost like thin ice of of we need a bit of money or they're all within capitalism and it, i think it just inherently changes the dynamics i think oh i think that's absolutely right yeah 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I spoke about with with um, John Cousins a while back about this was actually like the digitalization of culture and analog cultures seem to, you know, this idea of going out, having to walk somewhere, finding some back room. There was something in that, but I think um, capitalism's utilization of the internet is sort of, it's destroyed a lot of community. I, I agree with that. I mean, digital is really interesting about its relationship to capitalism, right? Because on the one hand, just like you're saying, it like it absolutely just extends its logic everywhere. But on the other hand, don't you think that there's something lodged within the digital that's anti-capitalist in the sense that you can have everything you want immediately? Like it, it's like capitalism needs more barriers than the digital. That's why I think there's this whole struggle with intellectual property within capitalism because there's not really a barrier. Like even like I write a book. There's a web website in Russia that puts it out, you know, within a week, puts it out for free. And so, OK, people can buy it. But but as, as long as that's happening, then I think there's that's a real way in which the digital is just at odds with the the functioning of capital, even though I think largely that's not true. Largely, it, it, capital uses the digital. So you don't think those sort of those methods such as piracy or, or you know, uh, dodgy ways of getting things aren't still beneficial to capitalism? Well, may, you're right. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. And 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 because because in the sense that they create this idea that I I mean I I always think that anytime someone thinks they're getting a better deal than anybody else, they're utterly immersed within the logic of capitalism because that's what capitalism wants you to think. Like that's what the whole logic of the sale is. There are these other dupes over here. You come in, you're going to get a good deal and you're going to. And so you spend all this money you don't even want to spend because you think you're getting a better deal than someone else. And I think piracy is just an extension of that logic. So I think that's right. Yeah, I was going to mention sale. It's like my favorite one where adverts say, you know, save X amount of money. It's like, no, you save money by not spending it. Like, and (laughs) uh, it's crazy. But um, so... Did when you sort of finished the book and now it's been out, I think a couple of years. Do you, have you had any sort of big things that you might have changed or you might have um, thought actually that needed to be added in? Oh, uh, I don't think so. It's one of the few books that I've written that I still feel okay about. <laughs> I mean, I think I didn't. Talk, and then I, I wrote about this in my most recent book, but I don't think I talked enough about the danger of the populist uprising with it. the way capitalism created this evacuation of identity that then then almost demanded a kind of populist so i i don't view i view these populist figures like bolsonaro trump etc hitler uh not that they're all equal but um uh i view them as just a symptom of the ca- of, of capitalism not as they're not as its own kind of thing so i think that i didn't i don't think in the book that i really showed enough understanding of the way in which capitalism bred that kind of, uh, you know, return to identity. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I remember thinking the same thing when, I mean, I don't mind his work, but when Jordan Peterson came along is that one of the, one of capitalism's sort of primary traits is that if you fragment something or atomize it, it's far, far easier to control and market to, right? If you're a, you know, I don't know, super niche thing, you can market to it really easy. So when everyone's individuals, they're far more easier to pull around than the collective because you just feel a bit more vulnerable. So right. when someone like Jordan Peterson or Trump comes along and sort of draws a line or puts a border up and says, here's what, here's things which can mean something to you, um, 
you know, I think that came at the moment it was always going to come because, as you say, capitalism has like absolutely blitzed identity into just this blender which is moving so fast no one can right. grab onto anything um but but yes i mean that's a big question do you think there's ability to actually retain what we used to i mean what we'd call classical meaning from capitalism no i don't no, <laughs> i just don't i mean i think that that whole i mean i think that's gone with the with the idea of community you know i like i think i don't think community in the sense that i mean you were just talking about the way capitalism fundamentally reshapes these attempts to have a community apart and I think that that's absolutely true. And I think so. And I think I think identity is. But but I guess I don't view the loss of identity as that much of a problem. Right. Like I don't I see. I mean, for, for me, identity is always going to be ideological. And, and, and I, I, I would want to contrast subjectivity and identity. And so subjectivity, I think, is the way in which we challenge ideology. And, ide- and identity is just what the ideology has given us. So so I don't. I guess I, I view capitalism's evacuation of identity as a problem only insofar as it breeds these reactionary, identitarian, nationalist, fundamentalist religion kind of movements. But I think they're always a bit. This is something that um, Alexander Dugan actually writes about. Is they're always a bit thwarted because they're not really organic. They're they're being bred from capitalism. So it's like exactly. you're, re- you're reacting to the, the the like the fluxing nothingness of capitalism. It's not like a reaction to an event. No, so, I, you know, any any identity built on zero is always going to be pretty unstable. Right. right. I, and, which is why they have to fail. Right. None has ever succeeded. I think those those movements absolutely like if they really won, they would lose. Right. Because they're they're predicated that the way that they form identity is through this other that they despise. And if so, if they really destroyed this other or got rid of the other, then they would their identity would crumble. So I think. I think they're they're going to succumb to the logic of capital always. So I don't think, I mean, not that they can't destroy a lot of people in the process, but I think these movements are never going to be victorious. Yeah. Do you think that? What do you think then that? Maybe it's an obvious question, but what do you think then that the clear differences between um, a meaning that someone is clinging to now to give their lives some direction and the meaning that pre-capital, whatever that really means. What is the difference between those two meanings? Yeah, that's a great. I don't think that's an easy question at all. I think that's a really hard question. Um, I think that I think that now the meaning is always going to be false, like you were saying, because it's based upon this capitalist evacuation meaning. So I'm constructing this meaning, and it's always going to be feel be and feel constructed. Whereas I think before in a pre-capitalist epoch, uh, you could actually create a meaning on a much more solid ground. So I feel like there, and it, you know, through the church or through the the the, the nation—I mean, nation, whatever, maybe didn't exist through the empire or whatever. Like there was a way in which there was this solid ground beneath you, given. And I think it's what's interesting is I think the relationship between capitalism and and you know what's now state power, like it's a capitalism always has the upper hand over that, whereas before. You know, like money and and the merchant class was always secondary to either the religious foundation or the national foundation. Do you think some something it has something to do with the fact that we're, there's a there's to to do with globalization that on a local level, when you're not connected to you know when you don't know about absolutely everything that's going on at the touch of your fingertips, it's far easier to sort of cordon off and just say like this is my life, this is my 
you know, two by two mile life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's interesting. I never thought about this as a theory before, but maybe that's why capitalism needs its global structure, right? Because that way people can't just sit there and think about their own private world. You know, they have to think larger. And I think that's, that's, I mean, today it's totally true. You know, like most people I know don't even get the local newspaper, but they, they, they read the New York Times and Washington Post. So they're much more aware of what's happening globally than they're aware of what's even happening. This is true of me is what's happening locally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, an interesting kind of shift in the way people think, because as you're saying, in a pre-capitalist epoch, you would have no idea what was happening globally, but you'd know intimately what was happening locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt the, the same way probably since when I was really young, now I think about it, is when you'd, you'd see those, when, when you're really young and you'd look at like an economic stock market screen on a TV at an airport. I, some re- for some reason, I have a weird memory of them with the FTSE numbers and things. And it yeah, always yeah. seems like another language. And I remember thinking as I grew up, why does why do we all need to know about this? This should be a cordoned off thing, right? The yeah, same, yeah. The same yeah. as sort of most politics is like, you know, this is what's happening with foreign affairs. I'm like, well, why, why, why do we have to know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's a great little kid experiment experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this might seem like a strange question just coming to the end here. But what's your sort of personal relationship with capitalism then on a, like a daily basis of do you feel you've, um, you know, like exited, left, left it behind in, in some sense? No, I mean, I think I some I, I think I have some of the influence of it. I mean, I my kids, I have two twin boys and they they like I. I think someone would say like I'm vicariously capitalist through them because I kind of let them buy whatever video games they want. So I, but I don't ever, the only thing I buy is books. So I don't, I never, I really never buy things. And I used, I mean, I used to go to the movies, but, but that's, that's gone. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, so I don't really, yeah, I just, you know, I have an old car and I, yeah. So yeah, I just, I don't really, yeah, I don't have, I don't, I don't, I'm not that invested. I mean, I wouldn't say I've left it behind. I just don't, I'm not seduced. I don't think at all by the promise of more. Like I don't want, I kind of want less than I have even now. Do you, I mean, this is something I've started to do. It sounds really, really pretentious, but in terms of TV, I mean, I hardly ever watch it. Usually only watch it when someone else has got it on, but I sort of watch it like a zoo now. Like if you're watching an animal and studying it, not for the actual content, but just like, Oh, that's what people are watching now. That's what capitalism is doing, and it just yeah. it just keeps getting worse. Same same with films. I'm like, that's what you want to watch. That's what the collective it is desiring. You know, yeah. so you got to take that step back. It's it's a really pretentious way of being. But no, I mean, I get that. I just the problem is that I'm a film professor, so so I have to be more invested in what I what I see. But that I mean, your attitude is probably the right one. I guess I I've always looked for those films where like something else is going on like they're they have a critical edge to them or or that like i'm watching this television show right now the wire and it's mm-hmm. like it's you know i can't believe i haven't seen it but it's stunningly it was like produced by hbo and yet it's stun. it's this amazing kind of critique of of the logic of capital and how that infects both the cops and the drug dealer so so i guess that's what i kind of look for these things that are that are that but like i can't bear to watch for instance like i think this is what you're getting like these superhero films i was gonna i was gonna ask are you in agreement with scorsese do you see do, do you see them as sort of uh you can outline them as a clear symptom of capitalism yeah i think that's right i think it's i think it's our contemporary western you know the the in the in the 
forties and fifties, they produced like two or three Westerns a week. So you could, you could almost go every night to the movies and see a different film. And it's exactly the same logic, right? Like this super heroic figure who can't really fit in the community solves the problem. And then, and then they leave the community. Uh, yeah. But I think, I mean, I think this notion of the superhero, isn't that the absolute extension of the logic of capital, right? Like this figure that like, that's who we all want to be. And that's who we, we can go and fantasize ourselves being for three hours and then leave. It's like, those films are interminably long too, which is why I said three hours. Uh, so yeah, and I, but I, I find them just radically uninteresting. So it's even hard for me to, to get up the energy to see one, to write a critical piece of it, really, frankly. So why do you think that, why do you think they're so popular? Just because we can relate on an abstract level to the capitalist dynamics of them. Yeah. I think just because they, they, they promise this beyond of even humanity. And I think that's, so it's again, this like, like you were talking about this self-improvement, like the superhero would be the ultimate self-improvement. Yeah. It makes me think of um, Kurt Vonnegut when he used to draw the shapes of stories where you'd have uh, the character sort of starts out well, things are going quite well, then it's bad, and then they overcome that, and it's really good. And that's the the shape of every film ever. Everyone. Which, which, to me, you know, I think anyone who's fairly critical about films, you can go into most superhero ones and go, yeah, I know, you know, the third act... He's going to get out of this. And I can't see how people can suspend their disbelief that people aren't, you know, the superhero isn't going to come out out on top, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Because it never gets, the logic never gets mixed up at all, right? Like it's just kind of follows the same logic all the time. I, you know, I, it's hard for me to attack a whole genre. I think it is a genre. I think I agree with Scorsese in that sense, but I, I think I do want to attack it. Like even the filmmakers, I really like, I really like Christopher Nolan, but I think the Batman ones are just, eh, they're just not, they're fine. They're better than other superhero movies, but eh, I just, I can't really, I think they're lesser than everything else he did. So I feel like there's a way in which superhero can bring down even these really good directors, which is kind of a, a testament to it as a failed I think there are certain failed genres. I think we should not be afraid to say that's just a failed. Like I, I, my sense is kind of the Western is a failed genre. I think there are a couple good Westerns, but basically the same thing for the reason you're talking about, because the formula is so profound that you can't, the film can't break out of it in an interesting way. And so it's just boring. And I think, I mean, I, I, one of the things I think is uh, could, could we ever get out of capitalism just because of boredom? Like, we know the story. It's so repeated. Like, I know the commodity is not going to satisfy. I know, I know what's going to happen. Can I just not buy it as a result of that? You know, like, that would be. Yeah, I mean, that's one hell of a question. What do you What do you think the answer? Do you think people eventually will collectively get bored? I don't know. Maybe. I do. I mean, I do think there is this. I think that most there's this, like, hysterical activity on the part of capitalist producers in order to come up with this new thing that people won't be bored by. But doesn't that suggest that they're all the time on the brink of being totally bored with what you're giving them? Yeah. I mean, one thing I was going to add there is that like, I I don't, uh, from, from the younger generation that I do know, I mean, I'm 26, but the ones that are sort of around 16 or 18, they seem to be in like this just absolute tumult, like almost like a chaos of consumption. Like I, yeah. I, like I just got out, like phones and smartphones became sort of universally used just as I left high school. So I just got out before it could fry my brain when I was too young. Yeah. But now like they're growing up and they're, they're, they are in, you know, from day one. And 
from from what I sort of see on social media, like the younger generations are just just really the the level of irony is so high that you can't really find whether or not they actually enjoy anything, whether or not they're sincere, or like so it's like it's pure just production and consumption. Yeah, I think that's a great point that irony is not a way out at all, right? Like irony means you accept the rules of the game and you're just playing. I mean, we talked about that Jean Renoir film, but that's exactly the idea of that Renoir film is that this ironic distance means you just accept the rules of the game and you play along and you're just as much a victim of it as someone who doesn't see through it. And I think I think that's our maybe one of our biggest problems today, this irony or this cynicism about, you know, like I, I see through it, but then I play along anyway. Yeah. So I think that's a it's so difficult to discern. It just gives me migraines. Like a lot of the the British TV, I mean, probably the same in America. I mean, we probably got it all from from you guys, <laughs> or vice versa. But, but yeah, or vice versa. We made some pretty bad stuff ourselves, you know. No, but, but you've had some good ones that we've we've stolen the idea from. I but but the now the people who watch these things, like on a collective level, even the adverts about them make it clear that everyone knows they're a bit crap and corny. Right. And like Love Island is one. It's like you put a load of just you know handsomely good looking people on an island and they all pair up and then they have to switch and there's some random status games whatever everyone knows it's really cheap even the producers know it's cheap the adverts admit it's cheap like i think one of the adverts even said you know you're gonna watch this it's like man we're in deep we're in deep so once you get to that point you know what do you do no i think that's right i think it's much harder to undermine the ironic position than that of a true believer right like it's almost like it'd be better if there were true believers in the logic of capital rather than this ironic distance because if you don't believe in because belief is the key to actually getting out of the logic of capital right you have to believe in something else in order to get out of it but if you don't believe in anything already then it's harder to to believe in something else i think yeah i mean i think that's why sincerity is probably the like, I think this is one of the problems. I mean, I wrote about this as my bachelor's dissertation. It just keeps coming back. It's the idea of, like, even if you're sincere now, people see it as, like, a kitsch irony. Like, oh, you know, oh, he drives a beat-up car. Like, oh, it's so hip and retro. It's like, no, no, I'm sincere. I don't care about my car because it's yeah. an object. I don't care about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see the game you're playing. It's so tough to get out of it. Yeah, it really is. But I, I think it comes back to this question we were talking about, about Big Other and just not and just saying, I don't care about that. I mean, I think you just have to, you have to, you know, do your thing and not care about whether that's going to, what, how it's going to fit within that logic. But you're absolutely right that it gets interpreted as this, as this ironic, cynical gesture, even when it's absolutely sincere. But I think your other point implicit in what you're saying is that there's a kind of radicality attached to sincerity today. I think Mm -hmm. that's absolutely true. Yeah. We're getting on for an hour. Is there anything you'd like to add that we've glossed over or anything you'd like to add in? No, I think we covered most of the key points, yeah. Cool. It's a great book. You know, obviously you don't buy into capitalism too much, but whereabouts can we uh, buy your book? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it's on uh, all Amazon and all those places, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Okay, thanks, James. Great to talk to you.